This episode is brought to you by our Patreon supporters. Become a patron today at patreon.com forward slash into the portal. The pines creaked and groaned as they swayed back and forth with the growing winds rustling throughout the dark forest. Makin watched as the trees divided and his family was revealed to him, ephemeral and milky visions as common in a dream. But was this a dream? Makin felt his heart pour forth a river of love, stretching across the dark abyss flowing towards his family, his wife, his two sons, and his youngest, a daughter, no older than two. They waved at him and began to draw nearer, and Makin felt the warmth of his heart grow as they came ever closer. Suddenly the forest darkened. Makin became aware of something moving in the trees behind his family. Something large, gnarled and dark. A monster. The blackened beast seemed to grow bigger and bigger, more ominous as it stepped ever closer, its sunken red eyes glowing fiercely against its dark misshapen skull. He watched as his family continued to draw nearer to him, overshadowed by this terrifying creature. As they came closer, he felt the warmth of his heart begin to freeze and turn into something else. Hunger. A deep, forbidden hunger. He looked at his youngest and saw not his daughter, but something completely different. He felt the hunger deepen as he gazed upon her, his desire growing by the second as they continued to draw nearer to where he stood. Suddenly, Makin panicked, realizing that his appetite was for none other than his own flesh and blood. He screamed at them to get away, run far, far away, for I shall do you no good but rather bring the worst evil upon you. The black creature with glowing eyes had become enormous at this point, towering over them all and creating a land of shadow and blackness, devouring Makin and his entire family. Over thousands of years, stories of such a creature were prevalent across the East Coast and ran into the far-reaching territories of Algonquin-speaking First Nations peoples. A harbinger of death. But what is this monster? Some believe it to be some kind of demonic spirit. Others, a physical entity not of this realm. Or is it merely a legend? Join us on Into the Portal as we delve into the world of a terrifying monster known as the Wendigo. Hello, and welcome back into the portal. I'm Amber Ray. And I'm Andrew McKay. Yep. And Sweet. We're, we're back. back. We're After back. break. <laughs> feels weird. It honestly feels like super weird right now. Yeah. But like really good, but uh I've been looking forward to this bit. all week, really. Like Totally. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we've got a brand new topic for you folks today. We're going to be getting into some... Uh, Something a little freaky, for sure. Yeah, something that has given me nightmares a little bit, yeah. <laughs> to be honest. And even just looking at some of the imagery associated, it's uh, 
freaky stuff. Pretty freaky stuff. Yeah, and it's a listener-suggested topic, too, which is is. cool. It is. Oh, yes, because that is what the month is, right, Andrew? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. (laughs) Right. Yeah, no, September, we, um, yeah, we put it out there that we're taking suggestions and stuff, and um, we have the next one lined up, but uh, still for the very end of the month, I think the fourth installment this month um we're still open always to suggestions um Mm -hmm. for topic ideas and stuff like that and the thing is too like we've gotten quite a few suggestions and a lot of them are like really halloween oriented so Mm. we're kind of breaking them it's almost like two months of listener suggested one of them more halloween and one more just but even this one is halloweeny kind of well that's just it it's like we've got a whole bunch of suggestions and we're always like oh we gotta wait we gotta put that off for halloween because it's super creepy but But, i mean but this one is really creepy too we like being creepy year round so Exactly. So, uh, well, but before we get started here, uh, we have a couple of, uh, well, actually, we have three new reviews. One of them is not so stellar, which well, we don't got, normally get. We've got four. Do we have four? Yeah, we got four. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> Just pile them on. Okay, sweet. Well, yeah. <laughs> One is not <clears throat> particularly positive. <laughs> but we always say we're going to mention all the reviews. So, this, but yeah, like, well, we, so yeah we we're going to mention it anyway. So. Yes. So this came from our US iTunes reviews and kind of a backhanded compliment a little bit. Like he's pretty well, harsh, I would say. And to be honest, I was slightly depressed because he touched on one of my insecurities. It's yeah. <laughs> pretty personal. Well, exactly. Yeah. Like even when we first started the show, like one of the main reasons I was hesitant was because of my voice. I was like, no, people aren't going to listen to this. They're going to hate it. Like I hate it. <laughs> So anyways, he did comment on that, mm. basically said that it's annoying and that it's chail- <laughs> nails on a chalkboard annoying. So that's nice. Lovely. Thanks for that. Mm. But what I was referring to with that whole backhanded compliment, he says, there are much better shows than this. And then he compares us to Mysterious Universe, which uh-huh. is a very well-established show. They're in like show. their 20th season or something like that. So I'm actually kind of like, oh, geez, like you'd actually compare us to them? Like, oh, <laughs> Apparently, man. Apparently. Uh, and they're, they're killing it, those guys. Yeah. Like, it's a sweet show, so i definitely check it out if you guys uh, are into that kind of thing. Yeah. But you know what's crazy, actually? I looked at their most recent episode, and they had an interview with George Knapp, really? who is one of the authors of oh, The Skinwalker. Skinwalker. Yeah, that's So that's cool. impressive. Yeah. So... Keep on having listen to that guy, man. If that's if that's your if you're jiving with that and you're not jiving with us, like you know, we're not for everyone. Yeah. That's all I can say. Hate really. is gonna hate, you can't please everybody. But exactly. nevertheless, we also had some stellar reviews. We did. Yeah. yeah. And this was awesome. Actually, we were conversing with this individual a little bit on our social media platforms. Mm-hmm. And oh actually, yeah, he did mention that in the review too. This was from Sun Devil. He gave us a five star. Yay. And he said that um, delightful hosts, entertaining, informed content. I love interacting with them and their discussion group as well. Sweet. Discovered it through Astonishing Legends as another suggested listen, and it did not disappoint. Nice. Uh, the topics cover a broad range, and I especially enjoy the historical based ones. So a little sun devil over there in Arizona. Thanks for that. Thanks, buddy. Yeah. Much appreciated. Much appreciated. Yeah, definitely. And then we had another one, too. Do you want to read that one as well? Yeah, we actually two more. Okay, go for we it. We had one from Piping Hot Podcast. It's a five star. It says, keep up the great work. Content's awesome. Just started listening, but can't wait to continue. Yeah, you. Yeah. And, of course, um, from Heath Rowe. And we actually were interacting with him a little bit on Twitter as well. Yes, we were. He says, definitely a must listen. Bizarre legends and storytelling at its best. Also, awesome back and forth between Amber and Andrew. Hey, so, thank you. There you go. It's so funny, hey? It's, it's so, so subjective. subjective. Oh. Jinx. <sighs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yo. But anyways, yeah. It's, it's unfortunate when people do nitpick things that you can't actually change about yourself. 
Yeah. Maybe like, maybe I could go with a whole like a filter for my voice, so it's all like robotic. I don't know. <laughs> Sorry, guys. For those of you that can put up with it, I applaud you. <laughs> yeah. No, we well, you've had people comment and be like, "Oh, we love we love Amber's voice," which is so funny, right? Like it is just totally subjective, and people have made comments about my voice too. Oh, exactly. But you know what? We. It, we definitely have developed thicker skins getting into uh, podcasting, and it's just, it's always interesting to see what people have to say. Exactly. And we're always open to constructive criticism, for sure. We don't yeah. expect every review to be absolutely stellar. I mean, obviously, if you guys are willing to take a second and leave us a review, an actual written review, then obviously to match with a five star is obviously sweet, but um, you can always shoot us an email, too, if you excuse me, if you have suggestions or anything that you think would be better differently or anything like that. We're open to suggestions, for sure. Oh, yeah, But exactly. thank you so much for those for those stellar reviews and uh, n- don't not so much. The only thing I will say, just to top this off, mm-hmm. is I'm just glad I don't sound like friends from... Or Janice from Friends. <laughs> friends from Janice. Jan, la bang. <laughs> yeah. No. I was compared to this one pop star from the 90s. Remember uh, oh, yeah. Jan made that reference? He was like, oh, you sound like... Yeah, my friend in the Czech oh. Republic, he made this interesting uh, comparison. That what didn't was the really... show <laughs> called? It was... I'm trying. I'm trying to remember... Oh. We're getting off topic here already. Remember, it was like that really famous show from the 90s, and it was like, it was the, like, it was a breakthrough sitcom about a girl in, like, in, I don't know, like, uh, Brooklyn? And she was like a single uh, mom or something, and... Uh, drawing a blank. No idea. Anyways. Sorry. <laughs> oh, I'm, too- I'm, I'm pulling that up, just so you know. Go for I'm, it. I'm looking it up right okay. now. All right. For some reason... Yawn isn't coming up. Where are you, Yawn? <laughs> Where's Yawn when you need him, really? I mean, he's uh, he was, he's usually always around. How do you spell his name? J-A-N. Oh, J. Right, John. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, moving on from that. Maybe. Not really, actually. I'm still on it. <laughs> oh, it's right here. It's right here. Oh, Fran Drescher. Friend. I have no idea who that is. Okay, well, anyone who <laughs> knows, uh, we'll send you free stickers if you know what show I am referencing. Yeah, shoot us a DM, let us know what show that is. All right, now okay. we're really on topic. Yeah, okay. let's, let's get into it. All right. Today, we are... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Today, we are covering something that, like Amber said at, uh, at the beginning, it's kind of given us nightmares, actually, like thinking about it late at night. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting because it's a phenomena that can come to you in nightmares, too. Yes, it can. Or in dreams. So today we're talking about the legend of the Wendigo. Mm-hmm. The Wendigo monster, or mm-hmm. the Wendigo demon, or spirit. There's a bunch of different ways to think about it. I'm going to call it a phenomena. A yeah. phenomenon. I think that's probably the most... It's a blanket term for it, a kind of uh, all-encompassing. So why don't you kick us off here? Yes. So this is a legend that finds its roots in Algonquin traditions. Algonquin, that is a term, a blanket term for a large indigenous culture that expands from the eastern seaboard all the way to the prairies and Mm -hmm. then to south uh, in Virginia, actually, goes as far into the U.S. there. Crazy. So it's known as the dangerous spirit of winter with the ability to transform men, women, and children into a terrifying cannibalistic creature with a heart of ice. And it is said that with time, this creature becomes gigantic in size and monstrous in nature with a gaunt, horrifying countenance to look upon. 
The Algonquins have a long history with this demon, so much so that one might remark that they retain a certain kind of obsessive fear related to the subject and are in constant contemplation of the idea that they themselves might be transformed into one of these dreaded creatures. Intense. Yeah, very intense. So, yeah, it's it's really cool. Like, Algonquin identity, it, it encompasses so much, like I said, right? It goes from the prairies. It has various nations, uh, including Cree, Ojibwa, Mi'kmaq, Mi'kmaq? Yeah. Yep. Kickapoo, all sorts of different, um, different regional identities that... Right share commonalities, right? Like linguistic commonalities right. and cultural commonalities and obviously mythos, like all that kind of thing. So very interesting. And then of course, um, this is in northern, the northern part of North America and you get these harsh winters, right? Where yeah. things become scarce. And so as a result in traditional, uh, the traditional makeup of the communities, they would actually break up into smaller units for winter and then kind of hunker down in these small units that they were sort of able, better able to uh, supply in, uh, in these rough times. Right, makes sense. But obviously that leads to isolation yeah. and sometimes extreme circumstances and real famine. And the only real promise of uh, the break of that is obviously spring. So that can be a long wait for some people. Yeah. Almost reminds me of The Shining when I was reading through some of this stuff where it's like just the slow descent into madness. Yeah, and, no kidding. Well, maybe not so much madness in this sense, but just like a descent into something, a transformation of sorts. Yeah. But it's very, uh, it's, it's ambiguous, right? It like, is. Yeah. There's yeah. a lot going on here. Very much so. It's mm. kind of a throwback to, um, not last week's episode, because we took a week off, but uh, to the Roanoke part two mm. as well. Mm-hmm. Just the idea of um, there being such scarcity in the winter and breaking off into smaller groups and that the, the Roanoke had left the island and uh, intense winters, man. So people people can go a little crazy. That was one of the theories for the colony, that they lost their minds. Yes. And that they... Yeah. Right? Ooh, and we actually did touch on that, right? The idea that perhaps the Wendigo could have been present in that In some scenario. way, shape, or form. Yeah. So essentially, though, like like Amber sort of set it up here, is that this is the these are the circumstances and the scenarios in which that this creature can manifest itself. And whether it manifests in a physical or physical or metaphysical way is something that we're going to get into because it, it varies from nation to nation mm-hmm. within the Algonquin, Algonquin uh, linguistic Nations, group. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But essentially, this is this is a, a quote from... Um, would it be Basil Johnson? Johnston? Basil. Basil Johnston. Mm-hmm. An Ojibwe teacher and a, a scholar. And uh, it's quite creepy, so this is how it reads. <laughs> the Wendigo was gaunt to the point of emaciation. Its desiccated skin pulled tautly over its bones, with its bones pushing out against its skin. Its complexion, the ash gray of death, and its eyes pushed back deep into their sockets. The Wendigo looked like a gaunt skeleton recently disinterred from the grave. What lips it had were tattered and bloody, unclean, and suffering from separations of the flesh. The Wendigo gave off a strange and eerie odor of decay and decomposition, of death and corruption. Not a pleasant uh, description, just to say. Um, Yeah, I'm just going to say. Definitely something you don't want to run into. That would be terrifying. Yeah. (laughs) And we'll get into some stories where people did encounter these types of things. Oh my gosh. Yeah. But like Andrew was saying, hey, like it's, it's some, in some cases you get something that's this like physical monster that's 
beyond human. And then in right. other cases, you almost are, um, you're almost witnessing through the story, the transformation into such a creature. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Because that's something. Yeah, and that's something we'll, we'll we'll discuss further too. But it's just sort of very, not I want to say vague, but it's just it's a, it's kind of an awkward thing. Like the idea of mm-hmm. an individual creature and yeah, the transition from human to that. Yeah, it yeah. kind of reminds me of uh, Kafka, hey? <laughs> very much so. Yeah, very, I don't even, yeah. So that is kind of the main sort of um, symbology of the Wendigo as well. Is this? It's a symbol of transformation of, like I mentioned, like a, it's a descent of sort or almost like a disintegration of the stable self right. into something monstrous or other. Yeah. Ooh, mm. the abject. The other, the mm. abject. You know, very much is like that, for sure. Like, oh, man, just even going through this description here from Johnson, like, the idea, it, yeah, it, it is almost like, it looks like a gaunt skeleton recently disinterred from the grave. That reminds me, it's like zombie-esque uh, terminology there, hey? Yeah. Where it's like, it, it, it's the undead, essentially. Nothing will satiate it. Nothing... Well, actually, we never even looked into... Like, the only um, source I found was, like, as far as, like, to destroy a Wendigo or to get rid of one is by the use of a shaman. And I would imagine there is some very intricate ritualistic process that is involved in that. Totally. Well, you know what's ridiculous? I came across a couple of just clearly um, ill-informed blogs that were were basically equating the Wendigo to a vampire and saying that the only way to kill a Wendigo is to use a silver-tipped arrowhead... And it's just, like, basically just, like, taking... taking And what, shatter its heart of ice? Oh, yeah, I guess. Like, why would... Yeah, exactly, right? hmm. It doesn't make any sense. Well, I don't um, know. Maybe maybe there's multiple ways. That sounds like a very European um, version, right? So, like, once colonization happened and the story perpetuated differently... That sounds like you a, get those injections of yeah. sort of yeah European so you colonial got the vampire narratives. narrative crossed over with yeah it's kind of hmm. interesting, but I mean yeah so like we said there's just there's varying descriptions to, of this creature and um, we mentioned a, a little bit of what this thing looks like but essentially it's generally agreed that the Wendigos have the sickeningly black eyes so the actual white what would be the whites of their eyes are usually black hmm. um, with red glowing pupils so you can see it from afar in the dark but that's all you can see. <laughs> Their eyes are also set back into their sockets, like we said. So it's like they're sunken eye sockets. The eyes are almost not even visible. Like pits. So they appear pits. like pits. Um, and quite often the skull is grotesquely misshapen. So not hmm. only are the eye sockets way more sullen than they should be, but the skull that they're actually set into isn't the right shape. Hmm. Um, or it just looks not quite right. Which yeah. to me... Anything that's, like, just not the right shape on a human... I mean, that is the abject, right? Like, anything mm. that's human-esque but not quite... Exactly. Ter- freaky. Yep. Like, that's just, just it, right? The closer you get to human without it actually being... Like, you know what I mean? Like, that's... Like, even with uh, cyborgs and things like that, right? Where it, it has that creepy factor. Yeah. It's like, this is not quite right. What I picture in my head is almost like a cross between a human skeleton and then, like, a... Like a a deer or like a um, a cow or something, yeah. you know, where it's like elongated the in the front skull. and then horned kind of on the sides. Yeah, yeah, very much so. So the skin color we mentioned too, it's very sickly and it's almost like almost yeah, like a like dead flesh. It can come in different colors though. So sometimes people will describe it as more shade, different sort of shades of gray. Mm. Um, other times people will just see red, 
because their head, shoulders, and torso usually are perennially soaked in blood because they're constantly needing to find new victims. Hmm. So they're always, they're always eating because they always, always need to be eating. Always feeding. Yeah. Feeding. Yeah. That's a creepy word when you use it like that, eh? Yeah. So, and then, and then again, oftentimes people, I guess, in the folklore will come across bloody footprints that are way too large to be that of a human, obviously. And uh, that's a good indication that a Wendigo has been around. Or even, like, I've seen descriptions where it's, the fur is matted, and I'm imagining almost like a a mangy animal that's like has yeah exactly recently been feasting and and just stinks of death and blood and like iron and all that stuff and is just like just covered and you know like obviously has no no not any recourse to cleaning but no need to clean or like you know what i mean like no uh instinctual like sort of like you know he's just walking around just like just constantly soaked in dead stuff exactly it itself just putrefying just it's almost like in a state of purgatory or something in, Ooh, a, in yeah. a sense. Yeah. Um, and this is, yeah, like we'll save more of this kind of like philosophy for the theory section and stuff like that, but, uh, very much, uh, related to other types of demons mm. and demonic figures and stuff like that mm-hmm. for sure. And then another, um, interesting feature of the Wendigo that, um, is one of the variations would be that it has extremely long fingernails and obviously very, uh, long, fat, jagged fangs, uh, where <laughs> the normal fingernails teeth. reminds me of salad fingers. Very much so. It's like... super, super creepy, long, skinny fingers that are just way too long. They shouldn't be that way. And of course, like a lot of the imagery that people will see when they look this stuff up is, are the antlers. And that's mm. not found in every version. Um, some are very just tall, skeletal, um, human-like ones that we've mentioned. Others are more have more animal animalistic qualities, like the elongated skull of a cow or a deer, and antlers to match, um, which is obviously extremely out of place in something that's walking bipedally. I'm trying to imagine, like, would the antlers like, um, like, would they just like? pop out of the skull of the person as they're transforming almost in like you know like how like sometimes you'll see like demonic wings kind of sprout out the back of people as they're like transforming into some sort of right. like demonic like entity or whatever if we're going the route of that this is a physical transformation i feel like it would have to either happen right away or it's something that's like the person is shut is shunned to the woods because they're believed to be a wendigo and they slowly mm-hmm. transform over time into non-human something that's non-human because there are accounts where you do see sort of a gradual uh transformation in an individual where they start to look more and more sickly and less and less human you don't get yeah exactly that the very um dramatic sort of interpretation we didn't come across that but if anyone else has and they have that in front of them we'd love to hear about it definitely um there's one thing i want to mention here too before we continue um, and this will come up again later, which I always say, sorry, everybody, I keep, I'm so bad that. for that. I know yeah. because it's so hard because it's like, this stuff always comes up because we made that comment about it's zombie like, right? Well, that just reminds me so much of skinwalkers and mm. that's, that's, that's a crossover here. That's really important. And, yeah. uh, there was, for anybody that's read the book uh, on skinwalker ranch or listened to the astonishing legend series, which is awesome. Go check it out. Um, the very beginning of it, uh, was a, an encounter with a wolf that ended up with a piece of flesh being left behind, fur and flesh, mm-hmm. that was rotting and deceased. And to me, that's uh, just an interesting sort of similarity here. Hmm. Because that was a physical piece left behind. Actually, yeah. That, Non-metaphysical. That's interesting. So we'll come back to that. 
Oh, we will. <laughs> so, like we alluded to, the Wendigo, in a lot of these um, legends and the folklore that goes along with it, uh, it is a transformation. It's a symbol of that. And it does take hold of an individual over a period of time, which can be years, even. Right. And not to say that it is exclusively from within an individual or a person. It can come from without. Like, that doesn't really Externally. Matter. Exactly. Like, it can be, like, a externally existing demonic entity that right. is a spirit or something. Like, And, and we'll get into that a little bit more. Mm-hmm. But there's one case in particular that highlights this feature that is a slow transformation. Let's hear it. That's the story of Mapanin. He is a Woods Cree member. The story was recorded in a diary kept by a trade post keeper named Francis Beaton of Trout Lake, Alberta. The horrifying transformation took place in the year 1896. Mapanin was an ordinary Cree native who was in regular contact with his tribesmen, as well as missionaries in the area. It's told by Beaton that he encountered Mapanin after the Cree man arrived in Trout Lake in a state of despair, relating to the tradesmen that he had had visions of his son appearing to him as a young man. Mapanin, in turn, had felt a strong desire to consume the body of his own flesh and blood, and that the desire had stayed with him for a time after the dream. Interesting. Yeah. Beaton was terribly frightened and disturbed by Mapanin's confession, and decided the man must simply be starving. Why else would one have the desire to consume human flesh, the most grotesque sin a person could commit? Reasoned Beaton. He set about making Mapanin a fine meal that would appeal to any man. But Mapanin was strangely silent and unwilling to consume the food prepared for him. Beaton soon left, still greatly concerned for Mapanin's state of mind, as well as for the Cree man's family, who appeared to be the target of his unnatural, monstrous appetite. On his next visit, Beaton recorded how sickly Mapanin appeared, with sallow, yellowing skin and sunken cheekbones. He gave the Cree man a dose of castor oil as treatment for his confusing illness, which the reverend, or sorry, he wasn't a reverend, he was just a trade post person, mm. he couldn't diagnose. But before Beaton left, he heard Mapanin muttering that his heart was turning to ice. Okay. After this visit, Mapanin was relentless in his belief that he was turning into a cannibal. The disturbed individual became increasingly fervent in his behaviors, and, inc- and eventually he was actually put to death by his fellow tribesmen after a period of three years. Hmm. So Beaton's account illuminates an important part of this legend, uh, the slow transformation that accompanies a spiritual possession. So in a sense, it is a physical and it's a spiritual. So it's within the person and then you can see it kind of reflected. There's that manifestation, yeah. Yeah. And the interesting thing about that too is that like when you're talking about something taking place over years, that obviously goes through multiple cycles. Like Mm -hmm. that goes into spring. So it isn't just a winter isolation where somebody will... But you know, resort to cannibalism because there literally is no food or something like that, right? This is something more than that. It is. And a lot of the cases, especially the early cases from like the 16, 17, 1800s, they do describe how these individuals have prior experiences with famine and have had close encounters with cannibalism, but haven't quite made that leap. Hmm. And so they have experienced this form of scarcity. So like maybe that in their, in their minds, they were just like ingrained with that sense of like, it's like close. If, if, it's... if it comes to this, we might have to do that. Right. 
And so in a sense, they're always on that edge, on that precipice, so to speak. And it sounds like it's almost like something ingrained. It's not even like a conscious thing because of yes. such exposure year over year, maybe not year over year, but ex, you know, multiple times to, yeah, the brink mm-hmm. of starvation. Exactly. It's interesting too, because, um, the, these individuals that are sort of going through this process, a lot of times they'll go through cycles where they'll have, um, very deeply ingrained melancholic moods and then they'll go from that to like almost a frenzy to being completely lucid and rational so it's it's very bizarre yeah it's very bizarre behavior and then obviously a lot of people interpret it as mental illness uh and we'll get into that too but anyways i just thought mapanen's story was a very interesting um one to illuminate that sort of transitional process no for sure yeah definitely so i mean yeah, I mean, we, we've talked about the <clears throat> the physical characteristics so far and things like that, and there's obviously more that will come out of this. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the interesting things about the Wendigo is that they have such great strength, or at least they're reported to have, like, they're powerful. They're mm-hmm. powerful, yet they're emaciated. Mm-hmm. They're starving. That's weird. Which is something you wouldn't typically think Is it think the power be, of desperation? I think that's what it is. Hmm. I mean, or that would be the metaphor anyway, right? Yeah. Because they're these massive creatures that have the ability to do anything they want to essentially they can mimic humans they can mm. mimic animals mm-hmm. they can turn into different animals in certain in they can certain call out in voices that are familiar to the person yeah and draw them into the woods so but yeah and that, that that to me is the most frightening thing to be able to mimic your loved ones and we um actually got the thoughts of uh adam from graveyard tales on this yeah um, because, uh, those guys did a really awesome episode on the Wendigo, Adam and they Matt. They really did, yeah. And, uh, yeah, super thorough. So we wanted to try to find some different things to cover, but, um, this was definitely one of the creepier things that we, we, you know, picked out of their episode and we wanted to get Adam's thoughts on that. So, uh, we actually have a little clip from Adam, a little, uh, message from the graveyard. Mm-hmm. So, uh, we're going to listen to A letter from that. the graveyard. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to take a listen to that right now. Hey there, portal lights. Uh, my name is Adam, and I am half of Graveyard Tales. Matt could not be here today because he's actually out this weekend trying to hunt down the Tennessee Wildman. So hopefully he doesn't get captured by the Tennessee Wildman. We shall see. When Andrew and Amber told me that they were doing the Wendigo episode, and they kind of asked what some of the freakiest things that we encountered when we were doing the research was, there were a couple things that stood out to me the most um, that have kind of stuck with me since the research. And the first thing is we encountered time and time again in the research that the Wendigo would mimic either loved ones or a baby or something in order to draw you out into the wilderness so that it could kill you. And, you know, we've run into that several times with different entities and cryptids where it will mimic something in order to draw you in. And to me, that's just, that's really freaky because you can't trust your senses at that point. You know, it it makes you not want to go help anybody if you hear them crying for help because you never know, it could be the Wendigo. Another thing that stood out to me was There was a story that we ran across of a guy who was out hunting on his property. And he, you know, he noticed one day that his hunting blind up in the tree had been torn down. He recalled going to check on it 
couldn't find anything like prints of an animal or anything that had torn it up. So he kind of reset it and ended up going back home. And when he came back out the next day, he encountered a Wendigo on the trail. Fortunately, the Wendigo didn't see him right away. So he, you know, crouched down into the grass and was able to hide from it for a little while. Well, then he started to back away and the Wendigo heard him and looked directly at him. At that point, the guy completely freaked out and jumped up and took off running. And the Wendigo was right behind him. And when it finally caught up to him, the guy ended up drawing a knife and slashed at the Wendigo. He remembers cutting the Wendigo. The Wendigo screeched and ran off. So he made it back to his cabin and, you know, he was telling his family about it. Nobody really believed him. But the next day, he and his father and his brother were out in the yard and his father looked over and saw the Wendigo out in the distance. And it came closer and closer and closer and it got to the fence and it grabbed a hold of the fence and was staring at him. And it ended up disappearing. Years later, like two or three years later, his father ended up committing suicide. And one of the things that they say is that Wendigo can drive people to madness. And this guy believes that the father's encounter with the Wendigo is what drove him to suicide. So those were a couple of the freakiest things that I can remember from our research and that have stuck with me ever since. So I'm looking forward to your guys' episode on the Wendigo and seeing what y'all can dig up. Well, okay. Sweet. That's awesome. Well, thank you again to uh, Adam very much for uh, for doing that. We really appreciate it, and that was really interesting to hear that take. That was really cool, because we didn't actually come across that last one in the course of our research, no. so we're really happy to have that added into the episode. Just Absolutely. Because it is really freaky, man. Like, that's a dark tale right there, and yeah. very recent. So, yeah. like, <laughs> and we have seen that, right? The idea that... The presence of a Wendigo, yeah, exactly that, can drive someone to the point of insanity. Yeah. And I wonder how long after that encounter with the Wendigo, the father actually committed suicide. He said it was a couple years later or something. That the, like yeah, few, that it had happened. Years later. Yeah. yeah. So I wonder if he actually had um, erratic behaviors leading up to that that were unexplained or yeah, we would need more absent before the encounter. But freaky, man. Like, Definitely. even the, the mimicry aspect too, that okay? to me is is terrifying and we've i'm trying to think of like other i mean it, like we, you made a note here and it's so true it comes up it's such a common trope in indigenous folklore mm-hmm. across the board trickery um trick yeah the trickery, idea of trickery deceit. um skinwalkers um i mean shapeshifters right sh- yeah they anything are, like yeah. that mm-hmm. there's i mean i feel like in other research we've done we've come across oh what was it I think it was actually in a Graveyard Tales episode um, where they were covering something uh, something to do with a lake and there was like goblins or something that could mimic. What? Oh, there was a name of like another creature that would basically, that was what they did. They were out and they would specifically cry like infants. Oh. Can't yeah. remember. But anyway, you come across it a ton, right? Mm-hmm. And that is just so terrifying because like Adam said, at that point you can't trust your own senses. 
And if you can't trust your own senses, that's you are going to descend further into paranoia. Mm-hmm. And that paranoia will eventually translate into madness if that continues. It's interesting you say, yeah, the paranoia, because I almost feel as though there is a underlying paranoia culturally in the Algonquin nations, yes. right? And so it's, here, it's, it's obsessive, it almost. Is. like, Or, well, not obs- well, maybe for some more so than others, but across the board, it's definitely a preoccupation, yeah. <laughs> I'd say. Yeah. And that's like one of the things, like it's a cautionary, oh yeah, cautionary cultural, uh, you know, folkloric thing or whatever. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, and we've mentioned this a million times in our different episodes, it's like to what extent does that manifest into something real? Yeah, you know, if if it's um, something being experienced year over year or winter over winter amongst different groups, depending on where you are, and that's where you get that regionality of the story. Mm-hmm. Well, these are real things happening to these people. You know what I mean? Like real starvation or real negative energy and like things like that how yeah exactly how does that manifest in the material world yeah oh that's such an interesting point of yeah it's like it's almost like chicken and the egg right like did the wendigo come first or did the belief in the wendigo come first right and you guys will hear that when we go through the different because there's there's the ajibwa the Cree, and there's different kind of variations of it and you can tell that the, the subtle differences are really unique like whether it is exactly. more physical or not mm-hmm. and that is that is really interesting to me well what, what what else did you take from adam's bit there that you thought was Honestly, the, the, I just got really freaked out about that last story. About yeah. Just the idea that this hunter, well, not hunter, he was like, he was stalking it though. He was out to, you know, witness it. And he ended up actually coming face to face with it and slashing at it, like with a knife. Like yeah, that's that, crazy. People don't usually live to tell the tale no. if, if there's something like that happening. Exactly. I'm trying to picture in my head how that actually went down. Yeah, because I actually made the <laughs> note here from away? that. It's like, like, that's obviously a very specific type of Wendigo, because I actually came across other accounts where, and I, I, I they weren't actually correlated to any specific, like, you know, nation or whatever, but where to look at a Wendigo would almost leave you helpless to make that direct eye contact. It was almost like a Medusa, like not going to turn mm. to stone, but you are going to be... Hypnotized almost yeah, or something? Yeah, just... You know, or left possessed. Per- just deer in the headlights like left in perpetual fear where you cannot move right like so and then it will come to you and consume you because this situation is just very animalistic yeah like an animal saw you it chased you down you slashed it and scared it away but that is i find that so interesting because that to me is clearly something that's not metaphysical no that's a creature maybe it was old yellow top (laughs) i don't know (laughs) who knows but that's just interesting like you mentioned just then the the nuances, right, within different traditions, right? Yeah. So we get this, okay, we get a feature that is more present in Ojibwe than Cree. Actually, two features. One is physical, the idea that these can reach up to 20 feet tall, so giants, yeah. gigantism. That's present in Ojibwe traditions, not so much in Cree. Okay. Also, the idea that the uh, the Wendigo can have non-human um, origins, so it can be from without. Right. And, well, actually, no, sorry, that's not um, specific to the Ojibwe, but, <clears throat> actually, yeah, sorry, I <laughs> that mixed up. The Cree was the one that's, like, basically, because they have this sort of dualistic cosmology of the world. Yeah. And so that's where you get the great spirit and the evil spirit. The evil spirit, um, one of the spellings for the evil spirit is actually very closely related to the phonetics of Wendigo. Okay. So, in a sense, like, some people actually interpret that or translate that as just another term so the evil spirit is the Wendigo. Is so the Wendigo. it's kind of like this 
overriding spirit that almost like, you know, like it's very similar to even ancient Egyptian cosmology, that type of thing. Same dualism, right? You get the two, the splitting of the realms. So there's the upper realm, the lower realm. Right. One's presided over by a, a seemingly good deity, one not so much on the lower end. Sure. And then you get the crossovers, right? So they have different influences. They have different agents right. or, or spirits that they send out. And then these spirits can, in a sense, um, they can either trick or through deception or through temptation, um, lure people into becoming Wendigos themselves. Right. How familiar does this sound? I mean... It- does this not sound like to, what? to like every religion essentially? Yeah. <laughs> or like oh, yeah. To, 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 to like every exorcist movie ever made. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like the idea of of an yeah an underworld and the the demons would be mm-hmm. like the you know oh yeah like the, yeah, angels and demons is that a show angels and demons that was a book oh it was, it was a movie though it. too right yeah Dan mm-hmm. Brown but yeah. I mean like some like literally like <laughs> demon like you know like the idea of heaven and hell though and demonic possession exactly right? a demonic pos- yeah exactly so. And the idea of these monsters appearing in dreams and dream sequences, that has a huge... Like, even in... Like, I I don't mean so much now, but in the past, in, like, antiquity, in, in Christian times and stuff, a lot of people would have visions in bed while they were asleep, seemingly. Or they would say, oh, I woke up in bed and there was an angel standing before me or something. Right. So they have these visions or these dream sequences. Again, we do get that in... Uh, Ojibwe and Cree and all these Algonquin nations. And it's a massive part of their cultural identity. Exactly. And it crosses over into reality. So right. if you have one of these dreams, it does have consequences in the real world. Inception, so, man. Very cool. There was this one story I came across. Um, it was uh, a 19th century explorer and chronicle George Nelson. He had one of the most detailed accounts of uh, the Ojibwe concept of the Wendigo. And like I said, it was extended to include these features of gigantism and Wendigos without human antecedent or origins. Interesting. So, okay, this guy, he <laughs> came across a Cree man who claimed that he had been tempted by one such creature in a dream sequence. And he stated that the Wendigo had invited him to feast on what appeared at first to be duck and game of sorts, but on closer inspection were actually human. <laughs> And so the Cree man exclaimed to Nelson, quote, Had I unfortunately eaten of this, then had I become a cannibal in addition to all my other misfortunes. (laughs) That was from Dangerous Spirits. As if things couldn't get any worse. I know, right? So it's like, that's interesting. Like, so if you are tempted and persuaded in a dream, then that translates into the real world, into your waking life. And that just speaks to their, obviously, their their uh, conceptualization of, like, a material reality, that mm-hmm. dreams are another version of reality. Exactly. It isn't just a dream. No, exactly. Right? There's there's real things. I, it's and that's funny, something this, this... that we don't know either, honestly. We don't know that much about dreams. Sleep is one of no. the very, one of the last frontiers, really, of, um, well, not like, there's lots of brain research frontiers left to be, mm-hmm. you know, right? And I'm not a biologist or a scientist, but um, I know for, that we don't know everything about no. sleep and dreams. How many times have you had a dream, and then you're going about your day the next day, and you actually relive your dream? Yes. And you're like, wait a second, I already did this in my dream last night, now I'm doing it in real life. Yeah. <laughs> this is weird. That's not something that you do every day. It's not like a routine type thing. So you're right. like, this, I have to pause for a second and recognize how weird this is right now because yeah. I don't know. It's like either the dream was a premonition or it oh, was yeah. a subconscious just like thing kind of guiding you into doing what you ended up doing later exactly. that day. Either way, it's Chicken manifesting a physical, something physical, right? Yeah. It's, 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 it's all connected. Yeah. 
Which is weird. You know, it's funny, though. This Nelson guy uh, that I just mentioned um, that came across as Cree Man, he was the one that recorded a lot of different um, encounters with people who either were paranoid they were going to become a Wendigo or were in various states of transformation. And he was the one that recorded this sort of, this idea that there was like a manic depressive state and then there was like a frenzied state and there was like a rocking between the two and then also between states of like lucid rationalism and how he Hmm. kind of, yeah, he definitely saw a lot of that. And he was also the one that suggested that this might be a widespread cultural preoccupation amongst the Algonquin peoples. So an obsession of sorts. And this was a quote from him. He says, Quote, they have such a dread and horror of this that it is constantly in their mind. End quote. So that to me, especially in those long winter months, man, like, you know, you're sitting around the fire, that guy starts looking like a juicy steak next to you. You're like, hmm. Yeah. Just, and that's just it, right? Are you going to wait for him to die and eat him? Are you going to kill him yourself and eat him? Are you going to just do the honorable thing and kill yourself hmm. instead? Like, you know, because that was obviously the most honorable. And a lot of people did. Um, Nelson recorded another account where there was a group of hunters and the head hunter came to him and said that one of his men was experiencing these symptoms and that he needed to be put to death. And he was asking to be put to death hmm. to, to avoid the sort of um, supreme sort of uh, taboo or whatever. Or yeah. Sin of sorts. To become a Wendigo. Very spooky. Very much so. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like there's so many, so many different cool things to talk about here. Like the idea that, well, even the Sean Smallman. So we came across a book called Dangerous Spirits and it's called Dangerous Spirits, the Wendigo in Myth and History by a man named Sean Smallman, Mm -hmm. who doesn't actually have any indigenous background himself, but he did a very thorough, um, treatment of the subject. Yes. And he talked about how spiritual leaders could induce the Wendigo phenomenon as a type of curse which I thought was really interesting because you do see that, right? The evil shaman versus the good shaman and how they can use their powers in different ways. And they're like sort of the portal between the spiritual and the material world. Yeah. So it's, he he writes here that the type of shaman that would keep a quote, keep a bag of tongues around their neck or threaten a woman's family in order to take her in marriage end quote, would usually be the type that would conjure a Wendigo and that only a very powerful shaman could overcome the Wendigo as well. Like we mentioned before. Uh, but very interestingly, people who are spiritually in tuned could sometimes sense the curse of the Wendigo approaching and kind of use their own sort of spiritual practice to sort of, um, like, or Fend talismans, or... like have like a physical bag of like, you know, like, um, stuff that would, uh, prevent them from being overcome. Right. There was one story, um, the case of Marie who, whose family, they, she was brought to, I think it was Canadian authorities or missionaries and she was suffering. She was basically whispering threats to them about how, like, how delicious they looked. Like, her family, her her sons and stuff. And so they were so like, creepy. okay, like, let's bring her over here and see if we can get some treatment or something. And she ended up going to a house of prayer, I believe. And she appeared to be recovering uh, until one day she freaked out because they took her little bag of... Uh, of different remedies and things that she had. It was like basically talismans. Sure. And they took that away from her and she just like flipped and was like, that was my only protection against the Wendigo that was trying to take over my soul. And I'm pretty sure it was a bad ending for Marie. I don't think she ever made it back to her family, but, uh, very interesting though, to think that these are the types of recourse, right? Shamans, um, spiritual 
like objects, sacred objects, things like that. And this is still a ma- this is still I mean shamanism is a, a ubiquitous sort of um, religion, I guess you could say. Um, it's different everywhere you go, but it's always yeah, like you, like you said, it's there. The um, what would the word be? Like they divinate between the existing mm. world and the and the spiritual world. So mm-hmm. they they have that ability to do so. Whatever they use to do it is different. I remember doing a bunch of research. You probably remember when I wrote like that ridiculously long essay on um, shamans in Siberia. Oh yeah, and uh, it's like forty pages. Yeah, it was ridiculously long, <laughs> but uh, I got a good grade. But anyway, <laughs> but. Um, no, it's fascinating, and they use obviously um, different different animals and stuff like from from the location, and they dress up like them. Mm. Um, they take on the different spirits of different things to be able to cross over. Interesting. And heal people by doing that, or obviously, yeah, the opposite. Ooh. Yeah, healing. Uh, it was interesting too because one reference I came across was like, yeah, like one way to heal a person of like spiritual illness was to starve them. And so I was, like, thinking to myself, like, if they're suffering, if they're turning into a Wendigo, they're already starving. Yeah, so that would not be the solution how for that you, one, you'd think. Do you just, like, throw them in the sweat lodge and sweat it out of them? Or, like, I don't, I don't know. know. Like, don't what know. would be the process? I'm assuming there is a very um, complicated one. Like, by, by most accounts, there there aren't very many ways to, to Other you than know, reverse the, the process. Yeah, yeah. it's... Uh, and it reminds me too, again, like we always, almost every episode, there's got to be an X-Files reference, but um, <laughs> we recently watched one where it was like the Skinwalker and uh, where the guy shoots what he thought was like a, you know, ridiculously large wolf right. ends up being a human. human. And it's this whole thing mm. where it's like, did he murder or whatever? Yeah. But uh, very similar. Very similar. So we have a few more like early references, hey? Yeah, definitely. Where's that Paul Lejeune? So, yeah, and this is what, like, this came up too. It's like the idea that was the, like, what what we know of the Wendigo now, how much of that is just sort of come around in the last couple hundred years from European contact, mm-hmm. and how much of it was original oral tradition, because yeah. it's kind of melded together now, you know what I mean? But mm-hmm. one of the first European um, accounts of this came from, yeah, this guy named Paul Lejeune, a Jesuit missionary who lived amongst um, some Algonquin-speaking peoples um, on the East Coast in the early 17th century. Um, in and around what would now be Quebec. Mm-hmm. So in this report to um, his superiors in Paris in 1636, he basically wrote that he didn't really believe that there was a physical being stalking people in the woods, but rather it was a, some sort of a demonic possession. So mm-hmm. he was blanket coating this European Catholic, or well, Jesuit, whatever. Just superimposing it over yeah, top yeah. of the, yeah. And basically saying this is what this is, obviously, because these people don't know how to interpret it because they haven't found Jesus. Right, right, right. They're still savages, so Exactly. He even, I think, at one point refers to them as basically having pagan, pagan-esque Oh, okay. Elements Rituals the... and beliefs and things like okay. this, right? Um, and then there was another Jesuit priest who recorded his encounter in 1655 with a Cree man who um, became obsessed with the possibility of transforming into a Wendigo. So this man essentially had gone mad after, like we said, after dreaming of the animal spirit, hmm. um, which threw him, which basically threw the entire camp into chaos. And he wrote that, the Jesuit priest r- wrote that his ailment coming in a dream uh, disappeared like a dream in his sleep. He who deals with pagan savages is in danger of losing his life to a dream. That's, that's a harsh way of saying that. Yeah, kind of. I, but, I feel um, like we need to just touch on the idea that all these, yeah, like you mentioned, right, all this is coming from a Eurocentric perspective. Yeah, absolutely. And it's inevitably colored by it. And when we say things like, oh, it's the ultimate taboo or sin, like mm-hmm. it, those are definitely 
like Euro Christian terms and and all of these things okay what I'm picturing in my head is like you know like the advent of residential schools things like that where the Canadian government is really clamping down on um indigenous nations and and taking away their sovereignty and things like that Mm -hmm. so how much of that into um, the 18th century and stuff like that you mean well exactly yeah yeah. like uh, these people that are experiencing these extreme forms of spiritual discomfort and whatever like is that like how much of that is caused by this European influence and presence and like, and the pathologizing of this sort of experience, you know what I mean? Like, cause it's not as if like, it obviously is a terrifying thing for the indigenous people already, but like how much of it was taken and used as a tool to control. And we will get into that a bit more too. Like Sean yeah. Smallman has some comments to make on that when we get into mm-hmm. our theories and stuff, mm-hmm. but, but very interesting. Like all of these, yeah, they're coming a <clears throat> Jesuit priest, a trade post keeper diary, yeah. uh, you know, like a, a, an explorer slash like a tradesman, where yeah, all, all these different, it's all white European accounts exactly, for sure. Yeah. But I mean, the interesting thing about this is obviously like we've said over and over is that these European settlers did believe in evil supernatural spirits themselves, just mm-hmm. not in the same way that their first nation nations contemporaries did. So yeah. they, so, so they kind of just, yeah, they blanketed with their own stuff. Oh my gosh. But I mean, all I just this, thought of the witch. That actually, that reminds me of oh the witch, like Puritanism, I right? I love and that the, movie. Oh, it's so creepy, but it's, it's so very good. much like that. Yeah. So it's like even in that film, for anybody who's seen that, if you haven't go watch it or save it for Halloween because mm-hmm. it's awesome. So Just good. cinematography, you're not going to un- understand half of what they're saying in it because no. it's old English, but very very cool. <laughs> like middle English. <laughs> but it's middle English. Yeah. Well. Yeah. 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 But <laughs> anyway, it's like the idea of okay, so they're protestant they're in the woods there it's whatever evil is there is manifesting in the way that they understand it's going Mm -hmm. through that eurocentric lens right Mm -hmm. the same thing is what happens for the wendigo yeah so now so then when you have european contact it's this melding of the two Mm -hmm. both are very much i mean if you believe in if you believe in witch witches or witchcraft or demons in these if you believe any of this at all as forrest (laughs) burgess would say um (laughs) but uh yeah (laughs) I've sort of lost my place here, but I mean, this all predated like Salem, obviously by oh, true, a ridiculous yeah. amount mm-hmm. of time. Right. I mean, yep. even when some like this first 17th century or well, second 17th century account, like this is 60 years before the Salem witch trials, mm-hmm. the people were still, you know, so, they were, yeah, oh, that's just, yeah. So there's lots of parallels here. Yeah. So the Christian faith is going through their own sort of, um, extremist sort of paranoia, sort of cultural, like religious thing. And then as well, you do get, yeah, the flip side, the sort of, uh, and it's not just the belief, like people were seeing things that weren't yeah. just the, na- like the, the local natives, like early Western settlers were rep- often reported as seeing a quote, banshee like creature. Really? <laughs> what does a banshee look like? It's basically just like a demonic, crazy flying witch like thing. Okay. As far as I know, that's just something you don't want to see. <laughs> um, but yeah, they reported seeing this thing in the woods and they feared its appearance because they believed this meant that there was de- going to be death in the community. Right. Mm-hmm. And so the Wendigo to them was essentially that they equated this with the Wendigo hmm. as a similar sort of thing. Well, that a harbinger of sense. death. Well, there's so many, I feel like there's so many different avenues you can go down to equate it with this or equate it with that. Like totally. we've made the loose connection to like Sasquatch perhaps or something or, well, well, we haven't actually, but yeah. I, I referred to old yellow, yellow top. top. So. You did. <laughs> but it's like these sightings continued on. I mean, we're, we're talking oh, 17th yeah. century and like this went through all the way through into the 1900s and into the early 1920s. There were Wendigo quote unquote mm-hmm. sightings Wendigo. coming from both indigenous and non-indigenous peoples yeah. in Canada and 
the U.S. There was a small town in northern Minnesota called Rosso. Mm-hmm. Um, that was like a hot spot for Wendigo sightings, essentially, really? in the early teens. In Minnesota, yeah. And, yeah. Um, so, obviously, northern town, Al- Algonquin-speaking nations across that region. Yeah. And uh, apparently the people in this town thought that they, well... So the story goes that every time there was a sighting, there was an unexpected death in the community. So very much like the story that Adam... Unexpected death. Yeah. Like a suicide or disappearance or whatever. Like something unexpected. Like, and um, a little bit more malevolent, right? Like not just like, oh, someone got sick with the flu and died. Exactly. But see, this is a different thing altogether too, because it's not like it's a direct attack from a Wendigo. It's just like the presence of of it. Very much so. Kind of like what Adam mentions with the Or maybe the disappearance is the... The Wendigo consuming well, the that, person. That, really that could be. But uh, but obviously, like, in uh, the story Adam mentioned with the suicide. Oh, yeah. Just, like, the idea of... The dark. It's like a harbinger of death. Kind yeah, of thing. just brings on this darkness. That's interesting. You know, another sort of... Um, it's almost like a different sort of tangent or a different fork in the road as far as, like, the sort of European lens or perspective consideration. Like, we went down, like, the whole idea, like, yeah, it could be demonic. It could be, like, you know, it's understood in Christian mythos and religious terms and whatever. But, you know, it's interesting. One of the earliest um, European written references to a Wendigo appeared in this dictionary. It was a Montagnus dictionary um, compiled by a man named Fabre. Hmm. Fab... Vre, <laughs> there's a V in there, <laughs> okay. in 1695, and he actually put the term loop garou next to the Cree term for Wendigo. Interesting. And it was probably just like a loose sort of reference, that like a comparison point for the French, because he was French, this Favre guy. Right. And Montagnes, that's just um, another sort of, yeah, Ojibwe, it's a member of a native... American native people living in the vast area of Canada from the Gulf of the St. Lawrence River to the shores of Hudson Bay. So okay. right in that neck of the woods. Right. But yeah, so loup garou. So that's the more like a cryptozoological sort of term because loup garou is obviously French for werewolf. Right. And that's, yeah, uh, not exactly the same as like the mm-hmm. quintessential werewolf, werewolf, but very mm-hmm. similar. But just something to a reference point um, for the French who obviously have no knowledge of this thing called the Wendigo, but they do have knowledge of large unknown animals which they believed are devils so you know what i mean like it's kind of like a rough rough point of crossover it's so hard for me to not take it like i'm (laughs) I'm notorious for taking things that aren't actually really evidence and sort of thinking that it could be because right because it's like here you have a european um uh you know term for something that they see and they're using it in a new place because they have no they have no way of describing what other people there have exactly. been experiencing for hundreds, if not it's thousands of years. It's all based on your epistemology, right? right? Like your way of knowing and understanding right. and those references. But the point is that if there's something that's being called something. There's something there being mm-hmm. named. Or so being... that, in a sense, that's referring to a physical presence, yeah. like a physical monster. Not like that... Um, the missionary guy that right. he, Where was, it's he like, was like, no, this is just like, this is just a demon, a spirit of sorts that's right. taking over. Which di- which isn't to say that he didn't think that it was dangerous. He just didn't think that it was a walking, breathing, dripping in blood, living in the woods yeah. thing. Yeah. But still equally as dangerous. Oh, I mean, or even more so in... because your soul is yeah. in danger. Right. So if you're going to the afterlife, like where are you going if you're a Wendigo? Like, yeah, exactly. you're possessed by one. You know, another actually, I just had a thought. Because um, we're talking about the idea of like a Wendigo can can become a human can become a Wendigo. That's one way. Mm-hmm. A Wendigo can possess something. That's mm-hmm. another way. Or it can just exist as its own, you know, 
separate creature living in the woods, essentially, mm-hmm. whether it's metaphysical or whatever. Mm-hmm. But um, what about... Oh, no, no, I'm totally losing my train of thought now. Oh, no. Oh, no. I just gained a train of thought. Go for what it. What if it's not um, limited to just humans? What if a Wendigo can take over, like, an elk or, like, a bear or, like, you know, like, and transform oh. it into a monstrosity? And then that's where you get, like, these, like, huge giants with, like, the antlers or whatever. Yeah, like, but bits all... of different creatures or exactly. whatever. Like, some sort of amalgamation or, like, you know, like, in... in I don't want to... I'm not an expert in Indigenous uh, cultures and uh, ideologies, but I do know that they don't really privilege the human like we do in our Eurocentric sort of um, cultures. No, and of they, they see themselves as more of a part of the ecosystem, right. a part of the whole, of as course. opposed to residing over nature. Right. And, uh, and so in a sense, if you think about it, they would equate themselves with these powerful spiritual animals, right? And, and see them as just not as human, but like, you know, see them as Equal. equal spirits or equal beings. And right. so in a sense, like maybe I don't, I, I haven't actually come across this, but what if they, the Wendigo can take over something other than the human. I don't know. Well, that definitely that, that definitely ties into the idea of shape shifting, I guess, and uh, sort of maybe. like in the sense that you can appear as multiple animals, or or maybe they can appear as a physical thing, but they aren't really physical. It's just like a it's a mirage or an illusion, right? Mm-hmm. All We're always dealing stuff. with these, this, the split between these two different things, between the physical, metaphysical, the physical in every metaphysical. single thing we do. And then, yeah, there's just so many different aspects to this. Yeah. But it makes it all that more fascinating. So we have, like, so many different, like, really... We already touched on, like, the Cree t- tradition here, the idea of, like, dualistic cosmo- cosmology. Yeah. Great spirit, evil spirit, uh... And obviously, yeah, some linguistic interpretation suggests that the Wendigo could be an alternative name for this evil spirit. Okay. So it's actually very interesting in in the Cree tradition because there's so many different spellings too. Like in this sort of area, they refer to it as Wittico. Uh, so it's just multiple spellings, Wendigo, Wittico, whatever. Yeah. And they sort of describe it as a single malignant entity of hideous appearance and terrestrial provenance. Mm. And that is kind of the ruler of subordinate harmful spirits that take the form of animals usually. But that these these can also be transferred to humans, right? So the end of the transference process is kind of something that can take hold over years. Like how we um, had that story of Mapanin and his yeah. heart slowly turning to ice. Yeah, right. So this brings us to the story of Wiskahu, who was a Cree native and a self-described Wendigo. Wiskahu resided in the Manitoba region, and he was very familiar with the brutal reality of famine. He had actually survived a few deadly encounters with scarcity throughout his life, especially in the long, cold northern winters. <clears throat> Uh, Wiskahu and his fellow clansmen regularly encountered frontier tradesmen and various explorers traveling through the area. One such individual went by the name of David Thompson, and he regularly engaged with the Cree peoples in trade. It was customary to give the natives a drink when they would see each other, and in a most peculiar fashion, Wiskahu would take his drink of grog and shortly after be seen in a most melancholy and contemplative mood. Murder, murmuring under his breath an ominous Cree phrase, ni witugo, or loosely translated as I must be a man eater. The phonetics of the phrase closely resemble uh, the Cree term ni 
Hey, we taking win? <laughs> I am a Wendigo. Sorry, I'm so sorry I butchered that. It's tough. <laughs> but it was very interesting because Whiskahoo, he he could definitely be described as someone who was going through this slow transitional process, and he, after a period of a few years, he was put to death by his fellow tribesmen because his melancholic moods were increasing in frequency, and he was just. It was just the inevitability of it, right? That's yeah. and, and the ideology, the ideation of the Wendigo is that it is inevitable. Once right. it takes hold of you, it has you. You so, know what? I feel like that maybe is part of the what I mentioned earlier with the idea of it. Like when a physical one stares at you, it's mm-hmm. too late. That's mm-hmm. kind of a metaphor almost for that. You know oh, yeah. I mean? Where it's like Actually, once yeah. it grabs onto you, it's too, it's, you know, you can't really reverse it. Mm-hmm. That would be the physical version of that same sort of idea. Yeah, totally. But anyways, yeah, I just, Whiskahoo. It's so fascinating, though, because he actually, he didn't transform into a monster. He never actually ate anyone. But it's also often described by the people that are the executioners. They put them to death to avoid the tragedy that would befall the community if they didn't. Just being proactive. They're just being proactive. But it's interesting, though, because in some cases, the paranoia was so great that even after the execution, um, the people that were still there would be terrified because (laughs) this is a quote it says here their superstition leads them so far as to imagine people derived of reason stalk about after death and prey upon human flesh such as they are witiks or devils so witiko devil that is also very closely um related terms so in that sense like that's interesting we get that idea of zombification again the idea that it's like the undead um they're almost like in a perennial state of um purgatory like you right. mentioned but that yeah it's just it, it's inevitable how many times have i said inevitable in this episode? Oh, <laughs> but i mean no that is so interesting though just because i keep coming back to like the story that I, that adam um told there and the idea of it being of being able to slap like defend yourself against it like mm-hmm. it's a physical thing mm-hmm. and um something that's undead wouldn't necessarily react, you know, in a defensive manner to like being harmed, right? You're already, it's already, it's dead flesh. And I, I and again, like yeah. I, I think of the, um, the introduction to the family on Skinwalker Ranch where they had that instance with the wolf, they shot it a billion different times, didn't do anything. Finally, yeah. basically just decided to leave because it was annoyed. Yeah. And the flesh that was left was rotting, just deceased, decayed flesh. Yeah. It, it didn't feel any pain. No. It was. It was just there. Yeah. Hmm. But we don't have that. I mean, I haven't, we never came across any of those um, types of pieces of evidence where someone, yeah, like shot a Wendigo and there's something left behind. Or in that story that Adam told where he slashed at the Wendigo and there was like a blood sample. Yeah. Stain on a, you know what I mean? Like something left from the creature on his clothing or something like that. Exactly. That, that was my first question. I was like, was there anything left on the knife? Was there, you know what I mean? Like. Yeah, take that to a lab and yeah. see what, what would that, you know what I mean? Oh, that would only. be, and and I and you know what? If someone did, I bet you it would be very much like that sample from Skinwalker Ranch, where it'd be like this blood is dried, cured blood from a thousand years ago, <laughs> on yeah. the tip of this knife. You know what I mean? Which would be totally bizarre. Totally. Yeah. So are we gonna go through a little bit of the Ojibwa? The Ojibwa. We've kind of touched on it a little bit, but yeah, there was this one story that was very um, telling, I would say. Mm-hmm. 
So, and you you actually added this in here. So it was like this guy named Alexander Henry, right? So he where he mm-hmm. was sort of just in very amongst, early. Yeah, like this 1767. was 1767. So he was obviously like a European. Oh yeah, he uh, was just a, a fur trader or something like that. Yeah, yeah, just in the yeah. area. You know, just uh, doing so, some sightseeing. <laughs> yeah. So just again, I mean, he witnessed a man who had recently joined his camp exhibit this, these these sort of similar signs and sort of what would be developing into cannibalistic tendencies. So he describes how this one uh, Ojibwe man and a few others had joined the party. The nation had been experiencing famine as of late, and the afflicted man had seen some of the worst hunger that anyone could really experience, um, emaciating him and transforming him into a ravaging beast, according to this report. So sitting around the campfire one brutally cold evening... The natives explained to Henry and his fellow traders how once a man has consumed human flesh, he will eat nothing else. He will eat (laughs) no other. Not believing at first, Henry watched as the man refused all food prepared for him. So very much like that story you mentioned earlier. It's already too far gone at this point. Mm -hmm. But all the while gazed longingly with sunken, hungry eyes after the children that lay just outside his grasp, exclaiming all the while how healthy and fat they looked. Mm, scrumptious looking so henry vividly described how gaunt and pale from the lack of food the man appeared skeletal like so skeletal like Mm. very much like the description of the the, some of the like yeah one of the versions of a wendigo no Mm -hmm. antlers no you know extra animalistic pale but everything else sunken eyes yeah so he also entertained the idea that perhaps the afflicted man could have been innocently uh commenting on the health of the children but uh, the indigenous uh, people in the party basically said, no, 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 um, this guy needs to be uh, dealt with because that mm-hmm. is not, that is not just a it's nice not a good comment sign. About, the, about the children's health. Well, he that's just wants it. to suck the flesh from their well, bones. Exactly. And the fact that there were, was food present available to him, right. uh, that is very telling. <laughs> yeah, I'd say. Yeah. Spooky to say the least. I mean, at this point, should we mention the idea of Wendigo psychosis? Yeah, we, we've, been we've, avoiding we've it. kind of avoided it. Yeah, because I I didn't want to go into this calling it a psychosis. Right. I just wanted to kind of blanket it as a phenomena. I'm not even going to call it a monster or like a creature because that goes into the cryptozoological realm, which yeah. is on the table. It's not oh, off the table, but no. you know, but I think just more generally, yeah, phenomena, but the Wendigo psychosis, right? So this is... Definitely a widely documented by European scholars. Yeah. Or sorry, Eurocentric scholars, I should say, not European. Yes. Um, but yeah, no, it essentially is the idea that it's a belief that takes hold in an individual, similar to anorexia or something where it's just a, not similar, but you know, like a, it is a psychosis of the mind, a syndrome of sorts. And basically it's characterized by un, un, well, uncontrollable urges to consume human flesh (laughs) right basically brought on by what researchers would would suggest is like from you know starvation from from famine ecological factors overwhelmingly there is a man named robert brightman that does argue against that yeah but yeah essentially that is the main idea that these people experience um extreme circumstances of famine and scarcity and then as a result this sort of psychosis takes hold of them right Mm -hmm. so very spooky and i do have more on that when we get into like theories and all that kind of stuff but i feel as though 
we couldn't do a Wendigo episode without mentioning one of the most famous cases in Canadian history and just generally. Yeah. And that would be the Gotta Swift Runner it. trial. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of freaky stuff. And it was interesting. We came across the generalities of the story, but upon listening to our friends over at the Graveyard Tales, they um, they definitely had a lot more to add to it. Oh, they so dug up some interesting stuff. They really did. So we're yeah. going to touch on this. All right. Swift Runner, he was an Albertan Cree native, and he was around during the late 1800s. Uh, essentially, his background's very normal. He was a young man. As a young man, sorry, he received a very useful Cree education. He had married. He had a family of six children. And he was also engaged with regular trade with the Hudson's Bay Company. So he was a very respected member of the Cree Nation. Oh, yeah. He served as a guide for the Northwest Mountain Police. Like, he was just undeniably a well-rounded character. Yeah. No one could say anything bad about Swift. But unfortunately, his life would end in tragedy and notoriety. In the winter of 1878-79, to 79, it was a very brutal time for the Cree people. And there was a lot of starvation and misery. And this was the same winter that he supposedly became possessed by the Wendigo psychosis, as as a lot of uh, some people doctors would suggest. And, and anthropologists would refer to it as. Right. But I'm just gonna say he was he's possessed by the Wendigo phenomena. So yeah, the boys at Graveyard Tales had some fascinatingly sickening details about this case. Wow. They relate how Swift and his family had been isolated for some time that winter. And when spring arrived and Swift was seen back at the trading post without his family, um, he dodged all questions about their whereabouts. Eventually, concerned members of the community urged the Northwest Mound police to search Swift's property. What they found horrified them. The property was littered with bones, sucked clean of the marrow. Upon inspection, these proved to be human. Swift's wife and brother in particular. (laughs) Swift never denied the incident, simply saying that a Wendigo committed these atrocities. He went on to describe how the Wendigo forced him to kill and eat his family, even forcing him to watch as his infant son was strung up by a Wendigo in a tree and then proceeded to yank on the young boy's feet until he died of suffocation. Many of Swift's tribe members came to his defense, believing the story that a Wendigo had come and committed the crimes or had forced Swift to commit them himself. However, the judge was less inclined to believe the legend and sentenced him to death. So very unfortunate. Yeah, Uh, no doubt. I I wonder, like, how many, like, pre-contact, how many cases similar to this were experienced by the indigenous populations and... A and lot, it, probably. Yeah. That aren't documented. Whew. You know, there's another, this is sort of sort of unrelated, but the story get, continues on and is also interesting where, like, when they actually went to hang him, there was um, issues with, like, the, the hangman didn't show up or something like that, and when they did, they didn't bring the noose what? or something like that, like, and Swift actually, uh, Swift Runner actually offered his own knife or something or like his own rope to be able to like get it over with because like it was taking forever because he like they were basically waiting to execute him and it was like just this kind of like drawn out thing and yeah yeah and he but he was basically just like um stoic Mm -hmm. like the entire time Hmm. um that's weird though because you think if he's suffering still from this phenomenon or whatever he would still have the desire to consume you'd think and he would still be uttering threats 
or like you know have that look like i wonder how he looked when he went into town in that spring you know what it, he probably looked pretty healthy if he was eating I've, everyone I've, well i guess <laughs> i mean how how healthy though eating humans is not well that's just thing. yeah i guess there's a whole schwack of things health that happen issues, to the body yeah. if you do consume yeah yeah it, it made me think of uh here we go second x-files reference but it made me think actually well actually is an x-files reference i can't remember um anyway. actually no let's go murdoch mysteries reference um murdoch. where uh, the episode where there's like the quote-unquote zombies mm-hmm. um where the guy is basically you know his wife disappears or whatever and he's sort of suspected but he's basically just like just like a zombie like no no real response to anything just kind of stone face just yeah. sort of whatever that's kind of what i picture <gasps> and what was the cause of that didn't he go undergo some uh, he had a lobotomy exactly right that yeah. was it so i mean obviously that didn't happen to swift runner but uh <laughs> maybe he had a spiritual lobotomy yeah, yeah. the wendigo just took his little what is that part again that you take out it's not the hypothalamus uh... it's something though can't remember it's an important part he it's needed important... they're all important parts <laughs> And there was another really intriguing case um, that happened in October of 1907 involving Wendigos as well, um, and another uh, Cree man. So this was a guy named by the name of Jack Fiddler. Um, Fiddler! Yeah, who actually claimed to be a very successful Wendigo hunter. So, and we don't really hear of that very often That's looking cool. at these stories. So he actually claimed to hunt Wendigos and that he had killed 14 of these monsters during his lifetime. Jeez. So the story actually garnered international attention uh, when the now 87-year-old man uh, was sentenced to life in prison for the murder of a Cree woman who he claimed was on the verge of transforming uh, into a completely, um, into a Wendigo and mm-hmm. was going to destroy the community, essentially. Um his son oh, I see. Joseph. Like, he was on the she was on the verge of transforming yes. completely. So she was on the path. Yeah. Like that slow transition right. that we've been referring to. Yes. And that she was almost at the point where she'd snap and yeah. go off the ledge. So Jack the stabbed her. Oh. She did. Was it a, a silver tipped arrow? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I'm thinking probably not. But probably she died. Steel. Yeah. So he murdered her and his son was actually a part of this as well. Um, so he was a, a, a self-proclaimed Wendigo hunter killer as well. But neither Fiddler nor his son Joseph hesitated at all in pleading guilty to the crime because they just, they insisted that their their decisive action averted what would have quickly become the impending doom of the rest of the community. Jeez. Because yeah. to, to let a Wendigo into your community is to essentially let death into your community. Exactly. That's so interesting. We see that so many times, eh? Where it's like, we were averting tragedy by killing this person. Yeah. Which some people would be like, but that is a tragedy, killing that person. Like, that yeah. was a person, but maybe not anymore. Right. So it's almost like, it's kind of funny, right? Like, on the people who are the purporters of the psych- Wendigo psychosis kind of angle of this what do they have to say about the flip side about the people who are claiming to hunt those who are afflicted by the psychosis is that just another type of psychosis right because obviously the conviction to actually murder if you believe that these people weren't possessed or anything like that 14 individuals well it's the same it's the same idea as that couple that we were talking about earlier the ones i can't remember their name off the top of my head but they were basically demon hunters and they went into people's houses that claimed that there was a possession or something going on and they would cleanse the house and they would cleanse the person. And essentially that would, I, I'm just like, that's a parallel for me, right? Right. It's interestingly enough though, I wonder if this fiddler character was a shaman because that would give him spiritual power, right? To actually go about authority to do these things. Right. But in, in, in the presence of colonial Canada and authorities clamping down on these 
populations. Obviously, right. they want to be the authority. They want to deliver justice, and they want everyone to be under their domain. Yeah. We're in that neck of the woods, which is very unfortunate for, obviously, um, sovereignty and uh, the right to self-determination. Yeah. Uh, but that's just how it went down. Very unfortunate. We do have one really modern sighting though. okay this is an and I, interesting I, I, I want you to do this because this is really really so i found i found this on pararesearchers.org it was a 2015 encounter and very spooky it comes from a place uh, called wimbledon in north dakota all right it was in farmland so basically this is how the story goes it was from a, a woman <clears throat> quote i was in the car with my husband and we were driving back to wimbledon from a friend's house it was about seven or, or sorry, six or seven p.m. We got into a fight, and I wanted to get out of the car, so he drove off, and I was walking. After five minutes, I turned and saw approximately fifty feet away, lying on its back in the snow, a very tall, thin creature. It noticed me and stood up. I felt extremely scared, and something told me, "Don't look at it, but don't run." I kept walking at a faster pace and crying. I screamed over and over, leave me alone, just leave me alone. I looked over my shoulder a couple of times and it was still standing still, just staring at me. I heard a heavy but loud breathing as if it were right next to me. From what I saw, it would have been about 10 feet tall, kind of hunched over, very thin, and had extremely long, pointed fingers and toes with a bit of shaggy hair on its head. It was white slash grayish in color and it had an open thin mouth with long sharp teeth. After 10 minutes of walking down the road terrified and screaming at it my husband came back and picked me up. I was hysterical and I told him what I had just saw. He floored it until we got home. I have no idea exactly what it was but I was telling my sister, or sorry, I was telling his sister of my encounter, and she told me three years prior she saw the exact same thing around the same area while riding four wheelers with her friend. Interesting. Up until just yesterday, I had tried thinking of everything it could have been and put it down to even maybe being an alien. Just because it was so unusual, I couldn't find anything about it until I was looking up Native American legends and saw pictures of a Wendigo. I'm telling you, most of what I've read and some pictures online resemble something so close to what I saw that night. Now I can finally put a name to the creature I've seen, and I would like to report this." End quote. That's freaky, man. Yeah. That's like salad fingers meets, um, um, like, Slenderman slash, like, I don't even know, like the almost like Mothman or something, right? Yeah, it's like, there's elements like that of that. It reminds me of Mothman the way it was just like in the tree line, kind of like staring at her, like you know, like I, that was one of the earliest sightings of the Mothman where he was like in a tree and the woman looked outside her window and just saw him just in there, just right, just peering, just looking. Yeah. <laughs> no one shivers. On this like one. I actually have like goosebumps right now. <laughs> I know. Right? Well, I, I, yeah, I can just picture that you're walking down the road and you don't want to look back. <laughs> okay, and the fact that. It was like, well, maybe she's exaggerating the actual um, time, like the length of time that she was on the road. Because mm -hmm. like when you're terrified, everything seems longer, right? right? It's like it's like slow motion almost. But I wonder if it actually was like she was out there for like ten minutes or or what. But even like turning to see it and, only fifty feet away is not that far away. No, it's not. And I'm I was kind of like 
So she's out there. She's yelling at it. She's not looking at it, which is what you're... That's weird, right? But she just had that intuition that she shouldn't look at it. That, to me, is very interesting. Yeah. If she had, I wonder what would have happened. Frozen. But she obviously did look at it because she got so much detail, right? Like, the the mouth, the fangs, the... But it's not eye contact. True, yeah. 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 So that's kind of bringing us into our theory section here. We're sort of winding down to the end. And that's, those are, you know, we've, we've given a few different stories of the Wendigo. We've, mm-hmm. we've talked about what it is, how it there's, differs from. There's so much going on here. Yeah. Like, is this a creature? Is it a spirit? Is it both of these things? Like, even that loose connection, like, you've made to the, the Skinwalker as a very yeah. similar figure. Yeah, because obviously with the skinwalker, the origins of that are very similar in the sense that one becomes a skinwalker by committing an atrocity, or one be- can become a skinwalker by similar, um, like a sh- like a curse, like a exactly. shaman can make make someone turn someone into a skinwalker. So before we get into all of that, we actually have a quick little promo break from our friend Ryan ah. over at Somewhere in the Sky. Yes, we do. So take a quick listen to this guy. When I was 12 years old, I saw something in the sky that I couldn't explain, and I've been searching for answers ever since. And now, I want you to join me on that search. I'm Ryan Sprague, the host of the Somewhere in the Skies podcast. You'll hear from researchers, experiencers, and individuals in all walks of life as we sit down and talk all about UFOs, the paranormal, and just plain weird. From the Antica Podcast Network, it's the Somewhere in the Skies podcast. Available now on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, iHeartRadio, and at somewhereintheskies.com. Remember, keep your feet on the ground, but never stop searching Somewhere in the Skies. Okay. So yeah, make sure you guys go check out Somewhere in the Skies. That's an awesome show. It's really And it's good. a great book, too, that he wrote. It's oh, really yeah. Awesome. yeah. Yeah, definitely pick that one up. Yeah. So... Like we were saying, so yeah, we're, we're, we're migrating into theories here and I was kind of making the comparison to the skinwalker and yeah, just very similar in, in the, when we're talking about a human becoming a Wendigo or becoming a skinwalker, that's, that's sort of one, one version of this that we've talked about. Mm-hmm. I mean, just as scary in my opinion, in the sense that someone can become that rather than it just being a monster in the woods that exactly. can consume you. And it's, it, the parallel continues, right? With the transformation process so it's like you commit the mortal sin of murdering someone and then that's how you kind of become a skinwalker in the other sense the wendigo it's like you murder and consume the flesh of someone and that kind of in turn makes you into a not to say that you need to have a cannibalistic act you can still be considered a wendigo without that and you're just transforming and you have all those temptations and all the urges but that is very interesting, right? Like the, the idea that you're you're dipping into sin, so to speak. Yeah. You're going into the realm of taboo. Right. The other reason why I wanted to mention skinwalkers and just because of the skinwalker ranch story specifically, mm-hmm. just because of the physical evidence that was um, collected and witnessed at that at that site. And we don't have as much of that with Wendigo stories. No. Right? We have the we have the stories themselves, mm. but we don't have like, you know, the chunk of flesh or like, yeah. you know, a blown off piece of antler from a terrified hunter that shot at one of these things, right? True. But at Skinwalker Ranch we do have these things. Like researchers, you know, UCLA researchers once Biglow came around and caught or tried to catch stuff on video, didn't work out, but those people were there and experienced those things. Mm. Um, you know, 
equipment oh, yeah. left at the top of a tree, like things moved, you know, like stuff moved, the trickery and things like that, yeah. things physically moved around because the Wendigo isn't as of a, as much of a, you know, um, one location type thing. We don't get that. Exactly. I was going to say like, yeah, that's kind of a discrepancy, like the hotspot location. Right. Even though there was, like, you alluded to that one Minnesota community that experienced that over a period of time. So that could be a hot spot. You could say that, but it's also, like, how how massive is the wood the woods around that community? Like, it's a small community. I think it's, like, 3,500 people or something like mm-hmm. that I looked up. But um, definitely the territory is huge. Yeah. Wide-ranging, for sure. The other thing I pulled up that was um, a similar indigenous legend, just like Skinwalkers, um, but isn't the same in the sense that people are turned into them is this really creepy thing called the Ijarak. And this is an Inuit uh, creature that's basically a shapeshifter, um, sort of similar to this other thing called the Tariaksuk, which is basically a half-man, half-caribou monster that steals children and takes them into the... uh, just takes them and just abandons them in the snow. Oh my goodness. So I read that initially and sort of um, thought of it as kind of like a, a, a metaphor for just children disappearing and just, oh, yeah. right? Like just or wandering, wandering off. off. Yeah. Um, but the idea of a half human, half animal type thing wandering off with children is very much like the witch that we oh, just yeah. mentioned earlier. And it's, there's something so sinister about wandering off with a child. Yeah. With a, with an infant. Like, for what? You know what I mean? Like, it's just so sinister. Get um, more heebie-jeebies over here. <laughs> but yeah, anyway, these um, these things can can appear in other forms as well. So most commonly, either as a raven, bear, wolf, um, or in a human form. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's not just the caribou. Right. Hmm. And the, the other neat thing about this was that these the elders, like Inuit elders, would sort of speak of these things as real creatures like that they're they're metaphysical but that they're misunderstood that they're not just evil that they're they're kind of tread they they, tre- they tread a fine line in between evil and just misunderstood interesting um that again makes me think of the skinwalker it's mm-hmm. sort of a similar thing i mean they are evil in a sense but only like you know don't mess with them and they won't mess with you hmm. kind of thing you know what i mean don't mm-hmm. go in their territory otherwise they will screw with you and that's obviously what happened at the ranch Yep. You know what I mean? The ranch. That's interesting here, this note you made about how um, they can't disguise their eyes, which are always red. Yeah, so that was another similarity mm-hmm. to the Wendigo. Yeah, spooky. Right. Got the black with the red centers, yeah. Yeah. Spooky man. Yep. It's believed that the Idrak was created when a group of Inuit traveled too far north when hunting and ended up becoming trapped yep. in the realm of the dead and the realm of the living, thus mm-hmm. becoming the Idrak. That's interesting. Okay, so they were at one point people. Yeah, like in the in the original legends, yeah. So there's like a group. Probably. And it's very much, again, the isolation. Mm-hmm. The desperation and isolation. And so like now that we're in the theory section, I'm going to talk about this, but like the, I mean, like I feel like that is what manifests um, something very real. So like when you think of some, you know, if you like, if say if you're a Christian and you believe in the idea of possession or Catholic or whatever, that's a very, you know, that's a... It's not tangible in the sense that you can actually see it other than what's actually happening to the person that's, like, possessed or whatever, you know what I mean? Like, there's no way of actually, like, measuring that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Like, I feel like it's so similar to this, though. Yeah. That's not dissimilar. But definitely a lot of elements. Well, even, like, that one story that um, the skin... Or, <laughs> the skinwalkers touched on. <laughs> that the Graveyard Tales boys touched on with uh, the little girl kind of getting... Um, 
she's she hears the voice of her mother right. in the snow, and so she kind of gets um, coaxed into coming out into the snow and whatever, and 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 then in the end, it kind of changes. The voice changes, and she realizes that on her mother, and so she ends up running right. back home. But that could I don't even know. I feel like there's like all these different sort of figures and creatures and phenomena and whatever, and even like Sasquatch just to pile that into the list. But like, what if some people are seeing another phenomena and actually mislabeling it as the other, you know what I mean? Right. So like, oh, you saw, you thought you saw a Wendigo, but you actually saw an Idrak. Or you thought you saw a Sasquatch, but you actually saw a Wendigo. <laughs> or like, you know, like all these different characters totally. and figures. Well, or are they all the same thing, like, but they're on that, interpreted in different ways. I think that's the latter. Like, I think it's that, yeah. what you just said. Mm-hmm. Let's touch on this Sasquatch thing, though, just because I feel like this could be a potentially controversial sort of comparison. Like, okay. it's coming up in, or like, when it came up a lot in the research where it was like, people were getting upset about Sasquatch even being mentioned in ref, like in reference mm. to the Wendigo, but kind of makes sense in this, in terms of physical sightings. So one of the things that's unique about East Coast Bigfoot sightings compared to West Coast is that the colors different so that they're typically a lighter color hair. Okay. Um, one of them is known as Old Yellow Top, like literally blonde. And they're more carnivorous. They're Yeah, they're, they're known aggressive. as being more aggressive, um, possibly carnivorous or at least omnivores, um, unlike the uh, West Coast Bigfoot that's that's herbivore. Mm-hmm. Um, and just match up with some of the characteristics of what, uh, you know, an aggressive like non-human bipedal thing would be. So I think that it's very likely that if this is a real cryptozoological phenomena, which I believe it to be, because I believe in Sasquatch, and this mm. would be a variation of that sub uh, it would be a, uh, an offshoot of the west coast that people would see that and that would be one of the versions of the sightings without antlers right that's one of the versions that it's a hairy yeah massive huge. hairy like thing 10 foot that will, yeah that yeah. 10 foot, foot plus which is very much like the very much like sasquatch although i think mm. the east coast ones are a little smaller than okay. the west coast um sightings of bigfoot sasquatches but even so they're still massive creatures right yeah so I think that there's a very real cryptozoological thing going on here and that if, in, yeah, that it could be once Europeans got there and they would be seeing these things too, that this could be the banshee that people were seeing mm-hmm. in the woods. Yeah. If it's more aggressive than the West Coast one, it's like throwing rocks at you, get the heck out of here. Yeah. You know oh, what no, I mean? Oh no, it's not, yeah. That's... <laughs> so that's my take on that because people will basically say, in, if you go and look at some blogs and stuff, they'll basically say the Windigo and the Sasquatch are the same thing mm-hmm. or similar things. Like they're both metaphysical slash cryptozoological and that's just not they're not the same is there an interdimensional element here Ooh, (laughs) you want me to go down that rabbit hole or what i usually do usually do i mean there's never any evidence for it it is (laughs) pure conjecture it is pure conjecture but it's fun conjecture it is i think if there's real things that are 20 feet tall stalking the woods they have to come from another dimension yeah right yeah and that, I almost picture it like almost like a waterfall where it's like this membrane and they kind of walk through it. Because like even like in the Skinwalker things. in the George Knapp book, they do um, talk about this one instance where it was night and they were out and they were, they had night vision camera and they had like, um, they had night vision and they also had like the infrared. Yes. So they, they had both of those going on. And the one guy who had the night vision he saw they were watching the tree line where it was a very um, prominent place where a lot of stuff had been happening and they basically saw what appeared to be um a, a circle of light open and it got bigger and bigger and bigger and then out of that circle of light came 
a large, like, bipedal creature yeah. that kind of came out of it. And the guy was freaking out. He was like, what, what is this? And the other guys, I w- they both had different technologies, and the one could see it, and the one, the other one couldn't. And so there was, like, this... He was experiencing it as the other person wasn't in right. that moment, and he was, like, flipping out. <laughs> and that just reminds... Yeah, it reminds me of that because you do get that interdimensional, like, where are these things really coming from? Like, the, the membrane... Sorry, that's just my analogy. is like, coming through almost like a waterfall or something, yeah. but very freaky man. Definitely freaky. Freaky deaky. And in that description, it was almost like a Sasquatch-like creature coming out. It was. Because, of course, you know, the, the general description... And Sasquatches about, were seen, or Bigfoots yeah. were seen in Skinwalker. Yeah. For sure. So that obviously ties into that. I mean, but, of course, like, the general description of a Wendigo is decisively non-Bigfoot being so gaunt, skeletal, emaciated, tight skin. Even if it does have some fur, it's mostly just, like, matted and right. decaying. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's a different thing, but um, interesting to discuss in terms of a comparison, for sure. Yeah. Well, switching so, gears a little bit, we, um, we do have um, some notes here on just the Wendigo psychosis. Uh, that we did touch on before, but anyways, we'll just repeat. So this is like the medical definition here. Uh, quote, it is a culture bound syndrome reported occasionally amongst Northern Algonquin living in the Great Lakes area of Canada and the United States. Wendigo psychosis usually develops in the winter when families are isolated by heavy snow for months in their cabins and have inadequate food supplies. The initial symptoms of this form of mental illness were usually poor appetite, nausea, and vomiting. Subsequently, the individual um, would develop a characteristic delusion of being transformed into a Wendigo monster. The supernatural beings eat... These supernatural beings eat human flesh. (laughs) Okay, just so we're... Just so we're clear. Um, People who have Wendigo psychosis increasingly see others around them as being edible. At the same time, they have an exaggerated fear of becoming cannibals. Hmm. So they have the desire, but they also have the fear, and it's sort of like working in tandem. Right. And this guy, Thomas Hay, from the University of uh, Missouri, St. Louis, he said that... The feature of Wendigo sickness, which is peculiar to the northern Algonquin speakers, is the unritualized, socially uncontrolled cannibalism among people of a society in which cannibalism is strongly tabooed and regarded with horror. So basically, they're just saying that these people, and oftentimes, the people suffering from Wendigo psychosis have food around them that they can eat, but they just don't eat it. Yeah. Because they have this sort of strange... And I, you know what, and honestly, yeah. like, okay, so, like, what's your take on this? Because it's, I think that there's elements of this that definitely can be a thing. Like, people mm-hmm. can go into a state where, obviously, this, yeah, like, they can act and in these ways. It's funny, even, like, sometimes you get to a certain point of hunger. I've actually experienced this. Well, I'm not starving or anything like that. But you get to a point where your blood sugar drops to a certain level that you actually, food doesn't appeal to you. Right. And you are, literally, you could be starving, but you're... You Not see hungry. it and you're like, mm, no. Yeah. But how would you explain the fact that um, the person yeah. in front of you looks a lot more appealing yeah. than that's the, the burger on the plate? That's a different uh, That's a whole there. different, but that to me, I, I'm not going to discount this as not existing. There has been a lot of debate amongst the academic community as to what would cause this type of psychosis or phenomena or syndrome or whatever you want to call it. But like I alluded to before, Robert Brightman, he goes through um, the history of all these different people and all their ideas about how how this sort of plays out and the causes. So like we mentioned, the ecological factor. Yeah. Did this come about as a result of contact with Europeans? Was it existing before that? Which Brightman does argue that it was in existence um, before. Yeah. And he, yeah, he goes into a huge lengthy argument that I didn't really... 
I didn't really finish the article. No, I mean, we're, not, we're, we're, we're not intending to go like so far down the academic rabbit hole with no. this, but I mean, ultimately I think that, I mean, there's obviously the, the other side of this too, where it's just a symbolic kind of folkloric uh, cautionary thing. Mm-hmm. And, and then, and that sort of amalgamated with, um, European contact and it's, other I stories. Think exactly that, else. right? Yeah. So it starts off as a preoccupation. And then with some people, it gets to a point where they actually see it as a potential reality. Right. And so in that point, it turns into an obsession. And then the obsession in turn sort of creates the psychosis within the mind of the individual. Mm-hmm. But for me, I'm not going to discount and say that there is no spiritual presence that sort of directing the person towards this as well. No, I I, I would agree with but that. But it's all, it's all bound within your epistemology, your belief system, what you find to be uh, legitimate authorities. So like the spiritual realm having authority and legitimacy versus medical science having that. You know what I mean? There's always that sort of um, tension between the two. Yeah, of course. But very interesting. We definitely wanted to touch on that. But yeah. Even just more generally, like you mentioned, right, this whole cautionary, it's like an Aesop's fable or something. Right. Where the the Wendigo is, it very much reveals much about the beliefs, the way of life, the social structures and traditions of people who tell these stories. The Wendigo legends, um, in a sense, like uh, Smallman, he kind of argues that they serve as reminders of the importance of community and what happens when people are left outside the community. Yeah. Uh, and how, like, basically, yeah, the symbol symbology of the Wendigo um, is an important figure in stories of family and community, especially in times of hardship, right? So Yeah, no, for sure. This is actually a quote from him. He says here, um, the Wendigo was a complex symbol, which in traditional narratives is closely related to the idea of family. For this reason, Wendigo myths often focus on reproduction women's behavior in public, gender relations, food preparation, and child raising. Women are at the core of these stories because they have the ability to transform family relationships and at its deepest level, the Wendigo is about transformation. Well, that makes sense. So that does kind of make sense. When you're thinking about it from that, yeah, from just like a purely cultural perspective. Yeah, Yeah. and yeah, like even like Graveyard, they touched on that too, right? How... How it's like, you know, you have stories to tell people not to do something, right? Like, they had the story yeah. of the snake, right? There's some sort of, um, like, a, well, it's a like children's, the, like, the bunyip, rhyme. The bunyip, the same thing. Oh, yeah. Right? Don't go to the, don't, go, don't, don't go, go too close the to the watering because hole, Because right? the bunyip's gonna get you. The bunyip's ya. gonna get you. Totally. Yeah, I, I definitely, I mean, that's, that's a thing for sure. Uh, but my, the thing, the question I always come back to, again, and this is how I'm finishing off my thoughts here with this, is... How does it originate as a cautionary tale? Was it, you know what I mean? Like, is there an original experience beyond the fact that there was starvation and people start eating thing, eating each other, you know, 2000 years ago or whatever, where these where potentially the, or, the oral tradition of this legend began, you know, yeah. well before European contact for sure. I mean, there, the one, the one yeah. uh, re- uh, source I came across, it's like the minimum of 200 to 300 years before European contact. This was like prevalent in the oral traditions of the Algonquin-speaking peoples. Mm-hmm. We oh. never really came across any origin story for the Wendigo, hey? Well, and that's just it. It's different. It's going to be different wherever you look. And it's going to be impossible to find an original origin story because... It's all It's all tradition. just... It's amalgamated over the years. It's changed, shifted mm-hmm. over the years. I'm picturing in my head some... Like, it's almost like a movie sequence where it was... Or an entire movie, really, you could make or a book out of it where essentially that exact 
thing happens where there is a, a really harsh winter and people start to consume other people. Maybe people that have already died. Maybe they kill them. I don't know. And then from there, they just, yeah, it's like a descent into madness and like it just a complete collapse of civilization and the rules are no longer. And then, and then from that, you kind of like almost like a phoenix rising from the ashes. Maybe you get someone, some person that recognizes what's going on around and it's just like. And that's where it begins. And that's where they come up with the stories like, don't right. do that. Or even, yeah, like obviously when you do consume human flesh, like we alluded to, like there are medical consequences for right. that. Like biological changes happen. Yeah. And I, I'm not, we should even do some more research into that. Well, it would like, be different now, obviously, than it would have been hundreds of years ago, mm-hmm. too, obviously, but still very negative. Yeah. Probably better back then than Like, you do nowadays. become a monstrosity in some sense, but maybe not to the extent, like, of the yeah. physical change. And, I, I, again, the point that I was going to make earlier, and I lost my train of thought, I and this ties into, like, the Idirak and that story of the Inuit legend and going too far north and being isolated and trapped... Just this idea that, like, those situations are the open door for evil. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? It's it's where mm-hmm. things are going so wrong and there's such terrible things are happening. Those That's when people are most vulnerable. Yeah. That's when that's when anything that is of not of this world would have an opportunity to get in. Mm-hmm. And that's, if you to believe in anything them. like that at all, whether, you, whether it be demonic possession from, like, a Catholic perspective or any other religion or anything like that, like... That's definitely the uh, the time when that would happen. That's that's what I'm. That's what I think about this. Like I'm mm-hmm. agnostic, but that you know things are out there. Things are out yeah. there, and I think that um, this was just their interpretation of some sort of yeah demonic possession mm-hmm. from the woods. Spooky. Yeah. Demonic cannibalistic possession. Yeah. <laughs> that's me. That's my. Well, take. that pretty much wraps her up there. Yes, eh? it does. Well, yeah, we want to know your thoughts. Wendigo. What do you think on the Wendigo, guys? Uh, this one was kind of more dense than we expected it to be. Like, it sort of started <laughs> off as being like, oh, that. cool. Like, it's a really interesting monster. But then it's like, you get into it and it's like, wait a second. This is just so much, like, indigenous history. Yeah. And uh, pretty dense. But we hope you enjoyed it. And thanks again to uh, Adam and Matt from Graveyard Tales. Yes, um, thank you. That was you. a big help for sure. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, thank you so much for joining us again after that week off. Mm -hmm. We had a great time, and uh, we look forward uh, to uh, being back again next Sunday. Yeah, until then. Stay tuned. Network.com.